0: Today I'll be speaking with a man whose work I greatly admire, Dan Carlin, the host of the Hardcore History and Common Sense podcasts. And Dan and I will be releasing this conversation jointly on both of our podcasts. We're calling this a crosscast, which is analogous to a cross post one sometimes sees on blogs that publish the same content simultaneously. It turns out we have many listeners in common, and many of you have been urging us to have a conversation together, I think anticipating considerable disagreement on issues like the war on terror and state security and foreign policy. And uh, I don't know that we collided as much as anyone might have expected, but we had a good, energetic conversation, which I greatly enjoyed, and I hope you will too. So in a moment, I give you Dan Carlin. Hey, Dan, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. Well, l- listen, uh, You know, as uh, my fans know, I have been uh, frequently referring to you as the greatest history professor on Earth at the moment, and I know this uh, may uh, cause you to blush. But um, listen, I'm just a huge fan of your Hardcore History
1: podcast and have been recommending it to anyone with the ears at this point. That is very dirty pool to start off a discussion with a compliment like that, because now what am I supposed to say, Sam? You said some of the nicest things, and I really appreciate them. Thank you so much. And li- listen, isn't it amazing that we're doing, we're having these kinds of public discussions in the realm of, you know, the virtual realm here where everyone gets to watch? I mean... The modern technology has taken us back almost to an Athens-type situation where we can have these sorts of public conversations and we don't require some TV network to figure out if they can sell airtime or whatever for something like that. It's a, it's a pretty interesting new world.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I, I do not say this to preempt any of the hard-hitting criticism. Yeah, which always comes, yeah,
1: from me. That's what I'm going to do, exactly. <laughs> yeah.
0: But um, I, actually, this is a, a question I wanted to ask you, though. Uh, you You refer to yourself as a fan of history and you, you are at pains to distinguish yourself from a professional historian or the, or the, the legions thereof who may, in fact, uh, be watching your, your show or listening to it and uh, scrutinizing it for errors. Do you get pushback from academics? What's that experience like for you?
1: Well, I have to be honest. Uh, I think my own opinion here, but I think everybody's been remarkably generous and and nice to me um, on everything because I had envisioned a completely different kind of program when we started it. I wasn't going to talk about any sort of narrative history at all. I was just going to talk about, isn't this weird? And isn't this funny? And the sort of stuff history majors used to talk about on their lunch break. And as the show evolved, the audience wanted more of the background. And so it sort of, it went into territory. I wasn't perhaps I I had never given a lot of thought to, you know, do I want to go challenge historians or something like that? And this is why we use so many um, quotes and, and, and whatnot during the program, because you know i think coming from the position that you know you're not an expert you're not pretending to be an expert so when you make some sort of statement we feel like you want i think i think we call them audio footnotes you feel like you want to have someone there to say listen it's not me saying this here's a couple of historical points of view you're still picking and choosing so it's not totally fair but at the same time i think i build that into the way we do things i think if i was a professional historian with all the credentials and published and all this, I would approach the program differently. Because I'm not, I make sure that every time we say something, we try to have somebody who is credible and who is trustworthy, or at or at least who 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 we should listen to a little bit more than the podcast host back up what I'm saying. So it's it's become a, a key way that the show has evolved to take advantage of the fact that I'm not a professional historian.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well I wonder how deep that Caveat actually cuts, however, because I, you know, in my career, I have weighed in on a variety of questions that fall outside the official area of my academic expertise, and occasionally I get pushback on on this very point that you you don't have a credential which would cause someone to be confident about your opinions in this area. Let's say you know on the topic of religion, for instance, Uh, but many of these areas simply require that one read the books and uh, be attentive to one's sources and have conversations with with experts and at a certain point you're pay, you're playing the same language game the experts are and uh, you know it's a, certainly appropriate to have humility and be attentive to the the frontiers of one's ignorance but uh, you know, in science, this really breaks down quite starkly because I'm, I'm surrounded by scientists who simply do not have the academic bona fides you would expect and yet they are contributing in various areas of science uh, at, the, at the highest level. There are physicists who don't have PhDs in physics, there are computer scientists who don't have even uh, college degrees. I, I'm, in, I'm in dialogue with, a, with an expert on artificial intelligence now who never went to high school. Right? So it's, it, at a certain point, it's, it's a matter of how you can function in a given domain, not a matter of what your CV looks like. And uh, scientists, uh, as long as you're, you're making sense, accept this uh, far more readily, in my experience, than people in the humanities. And I'm just wondering just how you view it. Because for, from, unless you're making mistakes and not correcting them, I don't see how you're not functioning as an expert on those topics you you touch, um, and I mean, maybe there's a distinction between, you know, if if you want to be an expert on World War II, or at least the Nazi side of it, you really need to deal with primary sources in German, and that's that's some uh, wrinkle there, but
1: uh, I'm just wondering how you see that. I think it sort of depends on the specialty we're talking about. So, I mean, for example, take a surgeon who who operates on people's brains. I think we can both agree that You know, you're not going to want your amateur brain surgeon coming in and saying, listen, this is I read this expert and this is how he he suggests we do it so that there's a specific specialty there. I think bringing up the humanities, though, is a a wonderful point because the humanities by its very nature. I mean, look at look at the subjects that make up the humanities, law, religion, language, arts, music. I mean, these are all things with much more leeway, I would say in terms of of even the creative than you get in something like brain surgery, for example. And and so I think I think the way to put it would be that, you know, you were just suggesting that people outside the expertise have something perhaps that they can bring to the table. In a lot of these cases, I think it three dimensionalizes things a little bit to have somebody from another discipline apply, you know, the, the mode of thinking common in their discipline to an unusual realm. In other words, in order to get a 360 degree view of things sometimes, take a historical event. You might want to have the Second World War examined by somebody who's an expert in military affairs, obviously, or somebody who's an expert in international relations is going to write a book with a different point of view. One of the best books I ever read on the Second World War was done by an economist who looked at it from a completely different point of view. And so in that sense, I think you can three-dimensionalize reality. And that's what you're looking at when you look at history. You're looking at a moment in reality. And there are multiple, a rush, on sort of a variety of ways to look at things. What I maybe bring to the table is I'm looking at this from outside the specialty. You know, when you deal with a lot of historians today, you are dealing with scientists in a certain realm. I mean, these are people that aren't going to talk about things that they can't quantify. Any good scientist is going to want to be able to back up what they say in a peer-reviewed journal. That's how a lot of historians are today. But the specialty of of what they study takes away that ability to look at things from a farther away lens, right? So in, in 50 years ago, you would have had all these historians who would have been just fine looking at events as though they were, you know, in a satellite and give you these big pronouncements. Most historians today wouldn't be comfortable with that. The problem is, is historians aren't dealing with brain surgery. They're dealing with human beings. And and that, by its very nature, is hard to quantify and hard to get your mind around. So I guess it gives me a lot more leeway than a brain surgeon. I, I just—and I, they've been very kind with me, all these professionals. I don't think they sometimes like the way I will um, dramatize events. Mm. But I but I look at this as like what, what Alfred Hitchcock famously said about what drama is. Drama is just reality with the boring bits, taken taken out.
0: And and that's kind of
1: how I look at the history show. I'm giving you the story that an author would give you or a writer would give you or a historian 50 years ago might give you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, what you're doing is fantastic. And that'll be my last uh, dollop of praise before we get into areas of controversy. That's it. It's got to stop now. That's right. Uh, So um, I've been hearing uh, echoes and rumors from among our mutual fans that you and I should have a conversation about Uh, the sorts of things you treat on your your Common Sense podcast, which I have listened to, frankly, uh, less. I've only heard a few episodes of it. But I get a sense that people are expecting us to not fully align on questions of foreign policy and just war and the war on terror and the role of Islam in inspiring um, uh, the terror side of that war. Uh, etc. And um, so, you know, I I don't know how much you know of my positions on this, but I suggest we just sort of meander into this, this, these areas and uh, see what happens.
1: Well, sure. And and maybe we could start with, you know, uh, how do you keep getting these people angry with you? I mean, I when, when Sam Harris, if you Google Sam Harris, there's going to be all these wonderful moments, like the, the Ben Affleck moment and all these other things. You know, I always, you know, I feel like I've got pretty thin skin when it comes to things like Twitter and all those other things. H- how do you deal with these situations, and then how do you go back and do them again? I mean, it seems like right, you're, right. You're, 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 the position you put yourself in is to enjoy that because you're going to just do it again on the next show. Yes. Well, I guess there's a
0: Freudian diagnosis for this. It's called I'm not masochism. going there. I'm
1: just suggesting you might yeah. consider it. Yeah.
0: Um, well, you know, I realized at some point that it doesn't bother me to be hated for positions I actually hold. If someone is, understands what I think and they think it's reprehensible and they want nothing more to do with me as a result, that I'm fine with. The, the thing that that gets under my skin and which, unfortunately, I have to deal with more than anything else. Is a frank misunderstanding of what my position is, or a, just a malicious distortion of it, so as to uh, spread a misunderstanding of it. And and I, and I deal with that just more and more now. And 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 unfortunately, there's there is no way to deal with it elegantly, comprehensively, and and effectively. You just you can't keep writing letters to the editor for the re- you can't just you can't follow your critics around, cleaning up the the mess they're making. Um, and it is, it is much easier to make a mess than to clean it up. So I, yes, wherever you go and you see my views discussed, you see, you see just total distortions of them. And that's, that, that does wear on me. And I, I, you know, I've, as a result, attempted to pick my battles and, um, I avoid certain controversies now, frankly, because I, I just, um, I anticipate the, the cost, uh, both in terms of time and, and, um annoyance and then just decide it's not worth it and I actually just gave up a book contract that you know was the best book contract I I ever had and maybe will will ever have but I decided the topic was so uh, was just going to put me in a in an all front you know 360 degree uh, mode of of fighting critics whose uh, first impulse is to more or less ignore all of the nuance in my argument so I I have um I'm 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 being more selective about uh, the kinds of battles I pick now. Although I'm liable to sort of stumble into any area of controversy in, in the middle of a conversation like this and and uh, reap the whirlwind. But it's it is it's annoying. But I I think some of what this conversation would be if we t- touch those topics is me distinguishing what I actually mean from what many of these people, like Ben Affleck, think I mean.
1: Well, and it's funny, too, for those who maybe don't understand, and I've only had the tiniest, tiniest sampling of what you must go through, Sam, but people will point me sometimes to, say, a Reddit page or or a bulletin board somewhere where they the, the, the headline topic will be, Dan Carlin said blank, is he right? And you'll read what it says you said, and you never said it. But there'll be hundreds of responses of people mm. debating what an idiot you are for saying that, even though you, and you don't even know how to begin to correct that element. And you just think, you know, if this continues to proliferate over time, the internet will be full of stuff that I never said, can't defend, and that people slam me for. So I can only imagine how you get it. And you're dealing with topics that require huge amounts of nuance and and lots of um, clarifying statements and lots of disclaimers and all that other stuff and if you just take a piece out of that to sample in a blog it's really hard to give the overall impression you're trying to convey on any of these subjects we all have that problem
0: yeah I, I, and also what I'm dealing with is uh, I'm, I'm coming up against certain taboos which are just um, kind of amplify misunderstanding so. The taboo around criticizing religion, as as opposed to other sets of of ideas, uh, that is is something that that people are are really uh, biased against tolerating. They think there's there's something indecent, just as a matter of principle, in criticizing people's deeply held religious convictions. Whereas you, there is nothing wrong with criticizing their their false ideas about history or biology or anything else, and. Um, there's also the a lot of white guilt and and understandable guilt over the history of slavery and colonialism and and the the just the the sheer uh, wealth imbalance between uh, the the West or the developed nations and the the um, developing ones and so a criticism of Islam in particular gets mapped onto those concerns about uh, inequalities in our world and and you get a. Um, you, you get a lot of confusion. It's interesting to look at cases that pass through this filter more or less undistorted. So, for instance, for me, the case of North Korea is—you pr- get you get pretty perfect convergence from people in the West, you liberal or conservative, on the wrongness, the ethical wrongness of the regime in North Korea. And I think more or less everyone would acknowledge that if there was something we could do— to liberate the North Korean people, without too much bloodshed, we should do it. It's it's kind of like it's a, really it's a hostage crisis. We have we have a, a couple of maniacs or you know, generations now of maniacs with bouffant hair holding millions of people hostage, starving some significant percentage of them, and brainwashing them with an ideology that is. Um, just clearly uh, totally out of register with with any real understanding of what's going on in the world. I mean these people think they're a master race they th- they're they're essentially a cargo cult armed with nuclear weapons and um I think it's a uh, I, so if you if you talk to liberals and conservatives about this that the the, re- the real problem is just a practical one. there is no way to resolve this hostage crisis without massive loss of life they have nuclear weapons that's one problem but even short of that they have so much artillery aimed at Seoul that there's no way to do it without massive without a horrendous war so but if we could wave a magic wand and change the situation and and disabuse these people of their their mythology and their 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 intellectual isolation and and uh, cancel that regime everyone acknowledges that would would be a good thing and yet if you try to move that to a a similar consideration of of Islamic theocratic regimes, jihadist regimes, or, or Islamist regimes, uh, things begin to break down under the influence of political correctness. And so, I, I just I put that to you as a potential starting point, and
1: and uh, await your words. Well, let me suggest a difference. Um, take the North Koreans, for example, and we talk about brainwashing. I think your analysis was right on. But here's the thing, if all of a sudden they allowed an actual free election in North Korea... Be interesting to see the results. It'd be interesting to see if the brainwashing took hold to such a degree that people there voted to continue the regime, or if all of a sudden, you know, like uh, like the emperor having no clothes, we would see that all these people are actually more savvy and are able to resist the brainwashing more than we think and vote to do away with the regime. That'd be interesting to have. And the reason I ask that is because when I think about these Islamic um, the the extreme regime so for example the sorts of state that an isis isil is trying to put together for example or even let's just say one that that's been a more um functional uh and and valued member of the world community let's say saudi arabia if all of a sudden you had free and fair elections in saudi arabia that included all adults able to vote be very interesting to see what the results were and so when you when you talk about the ability of, whether it's liberals or uh, let's call them paleoconservatives or anyone else, to look at a situation and agree that a North Korea is a tragedy and wouldn't it be nice if those people are freed? And doesn't this also apply to these um, Islamic regimes? I'm not sure. I remember getting an email... From a woman and she lived here in the West, but she was Islamic, and I had made some comments about women in burqas and and the rights of women in some of these countries, and, and I had used that as as a particular, you know, touchstone. And she wrote me back and she said, Listen, no offense, but this is what you don't understand not growing up in this society. She says, I want this. I want this burqa, and she called it something else. is another word for it. She says, and, and I was raised in a society where we began as little girls to look at this and couldn't wait until we got to the age, and she said, now, my views may not be representative, and certainly different regions and different areas have different feelings about this, but from the traditional, you know, little town I came from, I didn't see this as an imposition on my freedom. To me, it was a rite of passage and it was it's a cultural change for me to see it as some sort of inhibition, because here in the West, I think she should have the right to wear a miniskirt, which is not something that might have occurred to her. Um, And so, in other words, if you could go to these areas that that the ISIS folks are beginning to take over or lose, as the case may be and ask what the people there want it'd be very interesting whether or not they want to be liberated and you know you can have two kinds of liberation you can have the the pie-in-the-sky one where we say we're gonna liberate you and in fifty years you're gonna be like germany is today or we can liberate you and you sunni folks will be living under a bunch of shiites who take advantage of you all the time i mean it's not a perfect world where we can offer these people a panacea either so they're often making the same sorts of choices in their heads that we're making at the ballot box, which is, are we going to get a lot of difference if I vote for this Democrat or this Republican? Nothing seems to change. So you start to vote for lessers of two evils. I think those people would react in a similar way. Um, so, so I guess what I'm saying is there might be a difference between a, a country where it really does look like all these people are captives, like North Korea, and another country like Saudi Arabia, where you're just not sure if you actually polled people in a free poll, if they would say they wanted to continue to live like that or not. There may be a cultural difference it's hard for us to notice.
0: Yeah, well, I, I think this this goes to the foundational issue of whether anyone can want the wrong things and whether there's a place to stand where you can say that, they in fact, they do want the wrong things. They have been brainwashed, as I said, in the case of North Korea, or uh, some, some concatenation of causes has led them to—has trimmed down their worldview— in such a way that, that doors to human flourishing are, are closed to them or closing to them. And someone outside that culture, someone who has not been brainwashed by it, could open those doors. So, for instance, you know, literacy for women. Uh, I think uh, that is an intrinsic good, and it really doesn't matter how many women you can get to tell you from behind their burqa that they don't want to read. They don't know what they're missing. It's possible not to know what you're missing. And, and I think... Uh, Once you strip away political correctness, you have to agree that being born a woman in Afghanistan anytime in the last 30 years was to be unlucky, was to to be an unlucky woman by and large. Now, it's not to say that you couldn't find one happy woman there who, if if given a chance to sample all of the human experiences on offer, would, for whatever reason, realize that she is happiest in a burqa not reading. That's possible. But – uh, that's that's not how uh, most of the women there came to live the lives they're living. These lives have been imposed on them, and for the, for the most part, when you when you listen to the expressions of relief and humility and clarity uh, that that you get around this notion of, of of wearing the veil in the Muslim world, I don't hear it too much around wearing a burqa, but wearing uh, lesser veils like the hijab, you are hearing that as a response to the thuggish. Misogyny of the men in those cultures. Women are treated like whores and considered to be whores if they're not appropriately veiled. They are, you know, groped, and you know, in, in most of these societies beaten for not being appropriately veiled. it's just it, when you have that that kind of stigma around the empowerment of women or the, just the the sheer just the the, the, the mere sexuality of women. And when you have every man's notion of his own honor predicated on the chastity of the women in his life, well, then there's – yeah, it's, it's, it's two sides of a coin and no, no doubt many women feel relieved to be appropriately veiled in those cultures. And I'm also not holding up the miniskirt as the ultimate example of – uh, psychological health with respect to variables like youth and beauty and and female sexuality, et cetera, there's, there's, there, there may be interesting things to talk about there. But I don't think there really is much daylight between these theocratic societies within the Muslim world. I'm not saying all of the Muslim world fits this description, but when you're talking about the Taliban or ISIS or any of those uh, contexts and something like North Korea, which we recognize... Uh, rather readily to be a, a condition of brainwashing in a political cult as opposed to a religious one.
1: But what do you and see, this is where I always have have my issues with that. If somebody were going out there and making and when I say somebody, I mean somebody in our government, if somebody in our government were standing up and saying, listen, part of what we're doing in this world is making a world safe for women, Um, to walk the streets and to vote in their societies and to drive and to enjoy everything. You know, it's a human rights question, right? Um, And I agree with everything you said about that. But the problem then becomes one of selectivity. Somehow we care about these things as a country with a foreign policy where we happen to have reasons to care, right? Afghanistan might be important or Iraq might be important. But in a country like Saudi Arabia, which isn't just doing these things, but which in an educational sense is a bit of a fountainhead for these ideas and the most extreme of the extreme ideas, but they get a pass.
0: Well, but that, so that that is we should plant a flag there because that I think we will both agree is... Uh, really a perverse result of our dependence on their oil. And if if we could pull that uh, off the table, then I think things look very different. They get a pass because we need them to be our friends uh, or have needed them to be our friends almost at any
1: moral cost. But then let's talk about that because it's 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 better than putting a flag there. I would make the case that so much of the problems that we are having as a result of, shall we call it the 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 radicalization of a region has to do with the fact that we're over there. And they don't like it. And, and the reason that we're over there in large part has to do with the resources. Oil is obviously, you know, petro, petrochemicals of any kind, uh, obviously the main reason. But there are others. But we're over there. And, you know, I was I was thinking the other day about how we would react. And, you know, Sam, you've heard my shows. This is how I think. But But I always try to think to myself, you know, how would we react in a comparable situation? And it's funny. I was reading not that long ago, a book on the Iranian revolution of 1978-79. And they were talking about how the Shah's secret police in Iran were so good at monitoring any gathering of people that might be seditious that might want to overthrow the government in any sort of capacity to replace it with any sort of government and the one place the shah had a hard time was when these people would meet in mosques and meet over religious purposes because it was difficult for the shah's government to you know crack down on religious people without looking bad to their own population they had their own reasons for not doing it but it created a safe zone that involved religion in a way that 30 or 40 or 50 years previously, back in the era where you had guys like Nasser trying to push a you know, by Middle Eastern standards, secular sort of nationalism, where where those people were sort of forced into the arms of making, you know, in the same way we might have a Red Dawn scenario in this country if we had a bunch of Islamic people stationing their tanks on our territory because something, you know, under our ground was a national security interest to them. I have a feeling we would be doing things, I mean, we might not be slitting throats ISIS style, but I bet we'd have some guys in big trucks with gun racks in the back that were fond of planting explosives sometimes i mean i don't think we would react all that differently i think the fact that there's a religious overtone to this makes us feel like we would react differently where if you took the religious overtone out and just put us in the same situation i bet we're not all that much nicer than some of these people we see fighting what they see as outside colonialists or people foisting their culture or stealing their resources or what have you do you think we'd be all that different if the shoe were on the other foot well, I think the analogy breaks down a little bit because it's not—we're
0: not stealing their resources, I and mean, we're not stealing oil from Saudi Arabia. We are just uh, protective of it because we need it. Now, I, I think we—that's a problem we absolutely must solve, and we should be running a Manhattan Project to solve it. And 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 the technology is very much within reach. We could all be driving electric cars. We could all be on solar. We could we could we could have true resource security and. That would be an extraordinarily good thing to do. The, the analogy breaks down for me because, what one, we're, we're not mere invaders of these countries. Now, you, you know, I didn't support the war in Iraq. I think it was a, a terrible idea, it's especially a terrible idea in retrospect, although I think the argument could have been made for it more or less along the lines I just gave for the North Korean case. You had a, a uh, virtually psychopathic dictator and a hostage crisis and it would have been a good thing if the civilized world could have found a way to intervene and liberate the Iraqi people except for the fact that the level of, of religious sectarianism in that society caused it to explode into civil war and so and and I don't hold us responsible nor do I think anyone should hold us responsible for the millennia long internecine hostility between Shia and Sunni that's entirely a religious, confection.
1: But surely Sam it it was a known quantity that needed to be taken into account. It's why there oh, yeah. were people at the highest level saying don't do this. This is a fractured society that's being held together by a vicious strongman and if you take the vicious strongman out, who the heck's going to hold it together? It's Yugoslavia without Tito all of a sudden.
0: Yeah, well but it just it points to the differences that 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 religion introduces into these uh, these sorts of events. But wait, so, wouldn't
1: eth- wouldn't ethnic tensions play the same sort of role in some of these other societies? I mean, religion, it's not a unique situation. It's a variable that could be replaced by other variables in other places. I mean, the Nazis were, th- there was a religious component to it, but it wasn't primarily religious, but there was an ideological concept that played the same variant role in their situation. I think you could find hundreds of those, an, an ethnocentrism, a racism, uh, a superiority complex, ancient ethnic yeah. hat- hatreds, any of those things plays that same variant role.
0: Well, well, it's it's not the same. There 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 are other forms of us them thinking, no doubt. And you just you just ran through the, the list. Uh, so racism and xenophobia and and uh, any kind of in group out group tribalism is gets people to go to war with each other periodically. But the the notion of paradise. I think, changes the equation significantly, and it, which is to say, true belief in paradise and as uh, and in martyrdom as a way to arrive there, in fact, as the most reliable way to arrive there. And the Christian tradition really has never even had that the way it exists within Islam. And um, so that the the psychological phenomenon that I'm most focused on and most worried about, frankly, is, the fact that you can be someone without any political grievances. You've never been mistreated by anyone. You're just a guy who grew up in the suburbs of you know Marin County or uh, Maryland or or you know, any of these places where we've seen people uh, so-called self-radicalize, where they, they, they an internet meme gets into their head. They may have been born Muslim or not. But at a certain point, they decide, well, Islam is really worth looking into, and they read the books. And they go down the rabbit hole and they decide, yeah, you know, jihad is incumbent upon every Muslim male. There's nothing more beautiful or important to give your life over to. And paradise really exists. It really is waiting for me. Uh, I'm going to get there. I'm going to get the virgins. All of this stuff is believed by the kinds of people who are being recruited to ISIS. And they are going over there in a spirit of... Jubilation. These are these are not the, the ISIS is not acting like a bug light for the psychopaths of the world or the or the depressed people of the world who just want to die in the desert. These are people who are highly motivated. They feel a great sense of meaning, and we might you know, we might say that well this is not such a big phenomenon. We're just talking about some tens of thousands of people at this point coming from other societies to join the Islamic State, but. That phenomenon is a window onto the psychology of what is happening in these societies among the indigenous people who are committed to these ideas. These are—there's a deep kind of transcendental meaning taken on board when you actually believe these things, and it explains why you can get mothers to just celebrate the suicidal atrocities committed by their sons and why people can—I mean, a very chilling— uh, conversation I just read and, and excerpted in the next book I'm I'm publishing in in the fall was between uh, this former Muslim, a Muslim now atheist, uh, Ali Rizvi, and a supporter of the Taliban after the uh, uh, the school bombing in, in Peshawar in Pakistan in in uh, last fall, where 150 students were massacred by uh, members of the Pakistani Taliban, and a supporter. Online was expressing his support, and uh, and Ali got into a a bit of a a debate with him, and he just he just pulled back the veil on this sort of thinking. He said, "Listen, you are you are a materialist. You don't believe in paradise. Uh, Therefore, you think that these kids were just annihilated. They weren't. We know them to be in paradise because they've not taken on the sinfulness of their apostate parents, and we did them a favor. There's no problem killing these kids, and." But the problem I'm dealing with in talking to people like, you know, many of the people who are probably among your listenership is that secular liberal Westerners burn a lot of fuel trying to convince themselves that anyone actually believes this stuff. The moment you take on board the the proposition that millions and millions of people actually believe in paradise— and they think there's no problem with death. When all these jihadists who say we love death more than the infidel loves life are actually giving us an honest statement of psychological fact, the moment you take that on board, you have to admit the game has changed. Now, it's not totally changed. It's not like it, it shares nothing in common with the other sorts of tribalism you mentioned. And it's not that politics never plays a role here. And it's not that we don't do stupid things like ignore the sectarianism between Shia and Sunni. But... The, the, the thing I'm focused on, which has me worried, is the fact that you can get educated Westerners even to believe this stuff and to be motivated to act on the basis of these ideas.
1: But Sam, here's the thing. You, 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 you suggest in the tone of, of, of the argument that this is unusual or that this is singular, or that this is different. It's a variant of of human behavior we've seen over and over again, especially in what, you know, I was having a, a talk with a Southerner not that long ago who was talking to me about the Civil War and talking about the American South before the Civil War as what he called an honor culture. And these honor cultures are common throughout history. I mean, you take, you know, the the arguments that you were saying about paradise and the willingness to die and embrace death and enjoy death and make it beautiful and something to be be sought is exactly the way my stepfather, in absolutely horrifically scared terms, by the way, talked about how they felt about fighting the Japanese in the Second World War, right? And it was almost, it wasn't quite secular because there's a religious overtone to the whole thing. At the same time, the feeling of, 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 one of the most important things being to scratch off the imperial chrysanthemum on your rifle so that it was marred before you died and didn't fall into the hands. Of, I mean, all these things you just your mind reels. But what it seems to show is, is it's a window to a certain human experience, which is recurring. And not that uncommon. The idea the Spartans had that the people who were born in that society were born to die for the state. That's what they were. They go have more sons so that the state will be glorified when they die for. I mean, it's just this this I mean, what's the old line that one Spartan had when his wife was going to see him off to a certain death? And she said, you know, kind of what do you want me to do? And he said, marry someone else and have a lot of sons. I mean, the, the whole society is predicated on an honor system which says you die for the state or you die for the underlying cause that that justifies the state whether that's the emperor and his infallibility and his his godlike uh, uh nature or whether it's somebody actually telling you what god wants and what awaits you on the other side it seems to me that that we're taking something that is not singular and not that unusual when you look at the entire breadth and reach of history and making it sound that way
0: well it, i would agree it's on a continuum there's no question that People and it's not found, always religious, yet you no, know, the 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 continuum is not uh, there there's a religious continuum, but that that's part of a larger continuum agreed, which is just agreed. ideas motivating people to uh, give their lives over to a greater cause. Don't so, you
1: agree that that will always exist? You get rid of this particular ideology that's motivating these suicide bombers. There will be something else
0: well, no, I, I think I think we genuinely make progress in this area. I think that, for instance, Christianity, apart from a few pockets of fundamentalism in the West and a few um, aberrations that we're, we're in the process of overcoming, I think Christianity has moderated itself significantly as a result of its collisions with modernity, with science and secular politics and notions of human rights, and just the fact that in the developed world, most Christians most of the time have more that they want out of life than is suggested between the covers of the Bible. So, uh, you know, they, they ignore the bad parts in the Old Testament. They they ignore the bad parts in the New Testament. They try to to focus on Jesus and half his moods. The truth is most people, no matter how Christian they are, don't spend a lot of time reading the Bible in its entirety. And uh, they are very different, by for the most part, than Christians in the 14th century. And so, you know, you're, you're um, I, I believe you're, podcast on this topic was called Prophets of Doom when you listen to when you to to what it was like in that community and how credulous these people were and how expectant of the end of history in their lifetime those people are in a minority a, a tiny minority within the Christian tradition even i would argue among fundamentalists in the United States you can get fundamentalists to talk about the rapture and their expectations of it in their lifetime, but in terms of what is the beliefs that are operative that for them day to day, those have been have been knocked back considerably since the 14th century. And I, I, what I would argue is that while it's not a total difference of kind, what we're confronting in the Muslim world now is a little bit like a, a tear in the fabric of time, and we have the, the the Christians of the 14th century pouring into our world armed with modern weapons. And again, this doesn't cover all 1.6 billion Muslims, but it covers a disconcerting number of people throughout the world in Muslim communities east and west who are motivated, animated by a very literal and comprehensive reading of these texts, the Quran and the Hadith. And there are a few differences between Islam and Christianity that make it even more incorrigible Than Christianity was the Quran does not have a line like we have in Matthew, "Render unto Caesar those things that are Caesar's and unto God those things that are God's," and that line does a lot of work for Christians who just want to get out of the 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 state business, Uh, and and that's a problem, and and so we we have to find a, a way forward within the Muslim world for genuine reform. And there are people working to do that, and I'm trying to to help these people do that. I've, I've collaborated on a book with one of them, Majid Nawaz. Uh, there are people who are doing really heroic work and really risky work. I mean, that's the other thing that, that is quite disanalogous at this moment in history. To stand up as a Muslim and say any of the things that I have just said— very likely will get you killed in a, in a hundred different countries at the, at the moment. And that's a it's a problem that we as a, a global civil society have to find some way to
1: overcome. Couldn't you make the case, Sam, that, what, I mean, uh, for example, I mean, you mentioned something very similar to this. You go back and you read the Old Testament of the Bible, as the Christians call it. There'll be stuff in there where it says that you should stone women who are not virgins on their wedding night. And if you did that today in the name of Judaism, more than ninety nine percent of Jews would think that was crazy Mm. and 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 the reason is is why you ask why because once upon a time it not only was crazy but but the book authorized it in a way that maybe some of the people in an isis or some radical islamic group would say their text legitimized but here's the thing But, but but before you go too far down there just don't forget your
0: thought but in defense of all the truly crazy jews who still exist there are those who will tell you that no, no, it still holds. We just don't have a sanhedrin. We don't have a a consecrated religious body uh, to... to to
1: enforce it. ok, I got you. I got you. Yeah, okay so so there,
0: so... there are people who will actually just say that all of that's just been put on pause. But uh, if but they, again, if, they but if you a, saw it on a, YouTube,
1: yeah, if you saw it on YouTube, I don't know how many people are going to stand up and say, you know, finally, somebody's, you know, living up to the to the religion. Yeah. I, I guess my point is, is that and you mentioned it, What what we're seeing here is the vast majority of Islam. I know Islamic folks. I'm sure you do, too. They don't. They don't seem anything like the people that we have a problem with. I I have one who can quote the Bible like a a televangelist. He quotes the Quran in in multiple languages. And every time I'll ask him, I'll say, so I hear a lot about this aspect of the Quran. Tell me what you think. And he'll explain the different ways they can be interpreted and the different Islamic thinkers over time and the way they've approached these things. The people that we're having problems with, by and large, are a minority. And they're people who listen See, the problem that that Islam has, in a sense, that That the Ottoman Empire played a partial role in before its disintegration was some sort of ability to proclaim what is heretical and what isn't a part of the religion. In other words, let's pretend you had this caliph that people like ISIS always say they want. Right. Somebody who could play. I'm sorry for the analogy. It's imperfect, but a Muslim pope, let's just say. Mm. Not going to be able to deal with Shiite and Sunni things right away. But but someone who could essentially say, because you'll often hear there'll be some terror attack and you'll get a couple of uh, of Western Muslim leaders who will say, this does not represent true Islam. But true Islam right now is a difficult thing. It's a little like that guy who burns Qurans in the U.S. South and says that you know he's a preacher. He has just as much to make these decisions as anyone else. If you have a caliph who is a religious leader who can say, listen, I can't stop them from doing that. But let me just tell you, you do that in that 72 virgin claim is not going to come true. And who are you gonna believe? That that weirdo with his track record or me, right? That that's missing in the system. And this is why, you know, if you look at the problems that we're having with Islam, the vast majority of Islamic folks are embarrassed and horrified by the whole thing and are getting blowback in their own personal lives. People who wouldn't hurt anything pay the price for people who would. And and so and so you turn around and say, What can we do? If you want to win this war, if you look at this as a war on Islamic extremism, then to me, and you know, this is what what I studied in school. I studied try to try to come up with victories, right? Military mm-hmm. victories. It's a hearts and minds conflict. Oh, yeah. You got you got the, the people that are gonna win this war for us are Muslim. And so and so anything we do that alienates the people we need to win is counterproductive in the end. Well, I totally agree that this is a
0: a war of ideas that has to be waged by Muslims with other Muslims.
1: I mean that, that, they're the only people who are credible to those other
0: people. Yeah, and and it's it's a war of ideas and it is a a civil war. And we have to figure out how to help the true secularists and reformer and reformers in the Muslim world to to win. And but the the one thing I take issue with in, in what you just said is that it's a tiny minority who support these ideas or this behavior. That in fact is not true. It depends what you're talking about. But pick a number. Pick a number. Well, so you because there has been a lot of polling on this, and, and frankly, the only way we ever can gauge public opinion. You can't get engage it by, by just meeting as many people as you can meet. You have to do it with but opinion th- throw polls. Out a, but and, throw
1: out a number. Let's play with whatever number you well, want to so, play
0: but with. So one distinction I would make, and this is a distinction that was impressed upon me by my friend Majid Nawaz, with whom I collaborate on this book, uh, and Majid was a, a former Islamist. He was a, a former radical who was trying to engineer coups in places like Pakistan. Uh, he wasn't a, a technically a jihadist. He wasn't perpetrating terrorism, but he, he spent five years in prison for his activities in in Egypt. And he knows why radicals do what they do, and he's in dialogue with jihadists. And he he now runs a counter extremism think tank, the Quilliam Foundation, in the UK, trying to come up with a with a counter narrative for devout Muslims to disentangle Islam from the kinds of theology that, that you see uh, justifying uh, the behavior of uh, the Islamic State and, and other, quote, radical or extremist groups. The problem, however, is that if, if you if you run an opinion poll in the UK asking, you know, do, what do you think should happen to the Danish cartoonists after the cartoon controversy? Or do you think the, the, the 7-7 bombers uh, were justified in their actions? you get shocking levels of support for this. I mean, something like 70% of British Muslims think that the Danish cartoonists should all have been imprisoned. And I don't I don't know what percentage of those think they should have been killed, but 70% don't understand the the imperative that free speech win in this case. And that those are British-born Muslims. Uh, now, so you can only imagine what it is in Tehran or in uh, Mecca so the the distinction that that Majid impressed upon me is that between Islamists and conservatives, and and this is this has been has always confused me, and, and this is it's now clear, and this is actually the distinction I was trying to make on on that show with with Ben Affleck, and uh, you could see the results there. Islamists are people who are trying to impose Islam on society politically they want they want a, a state religion wherever they happen to have a state or whether or, or wherever they live. they want society to be obliged to live under Sharia law and jihadists are the subset of Islamists who are willing to do this through violence immediately that the broader set of Islamists just want to do this through some political process but that the goal is Sharia law for everyone and whether you're a, a Muslim or not, you have to live under an ascendant, uh, and triumphal Muslim state. and this is this is a global aspiration. Now, most Muslims are not Islamists, and I, I think the percentage is somewhere around fifteen or twenty percent worldwide are Islamists. and there, there are differences among Islamists, but what is Islamists agree that Islam has to become the global religion, and there's no way to separate politics from religion. The rest of the Muslim world, now we're talking about something like 80%, they're not Islamists. They don't want their religion imposed from the state, but a majority of that 80% is absolutely conservative in their views religiously. So they have views about the veiling of women and the honor Implications of female sexuality and the appropriateness or, or the acceptability of homosexuality and free speech, etc. Cartoons about the Prophet—they have very conservative views, which, in any given moment, may seem to align them with Islamists and jihadists and and you know the people who burn embassies in response to cartoons. But when you ask them about how they feel about the, the Islamic State or about Al Qaeda, they will tell you everything you would be consoled to hear of course they hate al qaeda of course they think al qaeda has hijacked their peaceful religion and they want nothing to do with it but when when you drill down on their specific moral attitudes they are extremely conservative and i would argue that and and as would majid that we have we have to apply pressure to both of these communities to embrace a global pluralistic liberal secular mode of tolerance that is only subscribed to at this point by a, a minority within the Muslim world not a majority it's not the, the, the numbers are not consoling and it, it is as you say not something that a a white infidel like me is going to impress upon uh, 1.6 billion people this is this has to happen within the Muslim world by Muslims
1: uh, but here's the thing see i think i think there's a a single and and I've seen this and I'm going to I'm going to take it in another direction in a second to try to show how I think this is a recurring thing thing and we've just plugged islam in for something else but I mean let let's let's take islam out of this and let's go to a bunch of americans down in the bible belt and say do you think the newspaper in your community should show that piece of artwork that shows uh, a Christ in in a a, a beaker of urine. Right. Uh, um, What what do you think? And should that be legal? And what their reaction would be to that? Or if you went to a bunch of people who were veterans of the United States military who served on, let's say, D-Day, and said, should people be allowed to urinate on the flag and then show other people that, or wear t-shirts that show horrible manglings of the U.S. flag, and should that be legal? The difference is that while they may think that's horrible and worthy of a punch in the nose, they're not going to go blow up a shopping center because they're offended. So I think the offensive side of this is a very human way to behave. And I think you would get similar sorts of reactions if you frame the question a certain way from all kinds of groups of human beings being offended to the point of wanting to punch somebody. Pretty standard human reaction. The difference, as you would have pointed out, is the desire to kill somebody over it as a way to intimidate them into behaving a way you want them to behave. And, and I um, would add,
0: as further along that continuum, the difference once you believe that you will go to paradise for doing so, or w- once you believe that your children behind whose bodies you're hiding as a human shield... Uh, will go to paradise if they're killed while you're behaving that way
1: but let so, me t- and again i I feel compelled to take um a non-religious example to point right. out that, that no, I,
0: I just want, I'm agreeing with your, sure, your, sure. your the continuum your the the structure you're sketching out I think this kind of offense is a very human and universal yeah
1: and let's uh, let's talk principle. about a heroic death right a heroic because for example um you look and you study the the side of the anarchist movement from a hundred and 10, 115 years ago, which, by the way, every time I mention all the peaceful anarchists out there say, please distinguish my views from the ones you're talking about. But about 120 years ago, uh, it was it was in vogue, let's put it that way, for people who thought that that political change was so necessary, it was worth killing people over to do something that involved what was known at the time as the propaganda of the deed. And the idea behind this was as if you let's say assassinate. And there were a bunch of foreign leaders well foreign from an American viewpoint assassinated. There were even American uh, attempts at assassination in order to kill a leading figure in order to get the publicity that comes with that and then encourages others to kill important political figures that are part of the establishment. The propaganda of the deeds. Whole idea was that you would be Giving up the rest of your life, whether it meant you got hung for capital murder or spent the rest of your days in prison or whatever, as a hero to the movement. It's like the old, you know, non-religious Soviet Union, the hero of the Soviet Union, right? The the kid who turns his parents in so they can be executed at the camp because they were counter revolutionaries. And then the little kid gets a statue devoted to him. I mean, these, these are not unusual kinds of things and no. they don't have to be and they don't have to be religiously driven to happen. So when we talk about people that are offended and then lash out, um, I, I think I think something like that is where the rubber meets the road in terms of when you say in a free society, you know, how do we make it not okay? I mean, let me give you an example. Once upon a time, if you killed your wife when you found her in bed with another man. There are courts that might have let you off for that and juries that oh, might have yeah. let you off for that. a lot less likely today because things have changed. But there's a lot of people out there you could interview who would say, listen, I'm just telling you, man, if you find your spouse out with somebody else and somebody gets shot, <laughs> you know, not that not that hard to understand. So, I mean, I think you may you may have made a case when you talked about the time fabric ripped open and we're seeing a bunch of people with a mentality that used to be more widespread or that runs counter to modern liberal secular sensibilities. At the same time, it's like saying that a bunch of people have a worldview that's dangerous and wrong. And the way we're going to to solve that is by bombing and and, and do and doing things that end up providing propaganda to the people you're trying to beat that they can then use against the people we're trying to convert or at least keep on our side to say see these people talk a good game but they kill women and children too and you can talk about things like intention all the time but if it's your kid that gets caught in the crossfire when we're trying to get a bad guy in Pakistan there's nothing I'm going to say to you that's going to calm you down and make you rational and not make you think I'm going to go get the bastards who did that to my kid so you're creating the next round you know you know what i was going to go if you remember my train i thought what i was going to go with this is say you know in a funny way as a kid and and i know you're about my age too we grew up at the at the at the the last half of the cold war the 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 so-called red scare which was Mm. so i mean for those of us who lived through it and, and were at least on my political viewpoint it would drive you crazy how we were obsessed with this communist threat and just sure it was just out. And then once the the spell was broken, you look back and you go, God, it's amazing we got so wound up over that. And then sort of almost in a historical sense, right afterwards, we now get this Islamic thing, which has almost been plugged in for what used to be a sort of a godless, atheist, ideological, you know, enemy to a extra God-believing, you know, non-secular enemy. I mean, in a funny way, I feel like it's deja vu all over again. And I just have Islamic terrorists plugged in for for former Soviet, you know, spreaders of world revolution. But but the justification that our government uses to impede on those very secular values that you were just defending is the same. It's a wonderful hammer with which to hit our constitution with, just like the Soviet Union one was
0: before it. Well, it it did get plugged in, but we should recall that it plugged itself in. We had September 11th, which was a A moment where history intruded into our lives. I really, you know, I don't know how you felt, but I really felt that was the first moment where it was absolutely clear to me that I was living in history of the sort that uh, I had read about in history books. Where you see that things can go totally into the ditch at a a moment's notice, that there are forces aimed at your life that you were not aware of. Uh, and all of a sudden, uh, there really is a a burden in the current generation to get the the maintenance of civilization right. But I agree with you. there there are many similarities there. And i uh, you know, I, I think we should be dropping bombs very selectively. I think the problem of collateral damage is a huge one. I don't think we should overestimate the number of people who become radicalized as a result of our collateral damage, but I think I think it is a genuine phenomenon. But what's more, of concern to me is that that certain ideas if merely accepted create a condition for a, a total repudiation of the kinds of values we need the better part of humanity to embrace at this point which is a commitment to free speech and equality among the sexes and a tolerance for diversity we we need these things globally we can't just live on islands of tolerance where we then are forced to interact with and uh, suffer our poorest borders with genuinely intolerant medieval commitments, uh, so we need to spread this worldwide, and 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 it's a it's a big problem. I, I want to I feel like we have dealt with Islam as much as we we need to at the moment. I want to actually make a lateral move to a, a similar topic and ask you what you think about these recent this recent controversy around the Confederate flag. And uh, whether it can be um, displayed uh, on the state house in South Carolina or in the uh, on the license plates of of uh, people who are fond of it. But um, I don't want to let you I don't
1: want to let you run away, though, with the idea of that we have to spread and we have to change these kind of things, because I think because okay. I think. okay,
0: I, Well, well so maybe you can carry it through to here, because I'm saying also we need to spread this within our own society. Okay. So we, we need to spread this uh, to the south as well on this particular okay, because point. I think and, there's a Wilsonian
1: yeah. um idealistic rainbows and unicorns side to this idea that we have to spread um, our view of things to other peoples and and listen, if you were going to say Islam, that's a big enough problem. but I mean there are places like China, that call what you just mentioned and and framed as a sort of a human rights question, a universal minimum standard, shall we call it, for for modern people to embrace ethically, and and call those Western rights. Oh, I mean, right, and, and But that's, they're
0: but they're wrong. I mean, I, I I'm comfortable saying they're wrong about. That. But how now, do you change things, it? There are things we're, we're, we're I'm certainly wrong about too. I mean, my I don't think that that I am in possession of the perfect. A moral code, which which uh, I, I you know th- I don't have to continually reexamine, but uh, I think it's it's fine for us to believe that on certain points we are right, and other co- and, and and we we n- now means not just the United States. I use the phrase the civilized world. I mean so that, uh, how that maps on to the developed versus the undeveloped world is not uh, not totally clear. I'm talking about people who are committed to freedom of speech and scientific progress and all of the intellectual and ethical virtues that allow strangers from different parts of the world speaking different languages to effortlessly collaborate peacefully on a common project of building a world where we can flourish. And so I I view it as a global civil society that is struggling to be born.
1: I don't think that the majority of listeners to these podcasts are going to disagree with that as an ultimate goal. The problem in this world is that there's a lot of very powerful states made up of hundreds of millions of people that have a different view. The question is, is how far... Are you willing to go in a crusade, essentially, whether it be a moral crusade to shame them into behavior or something a little bit more muscular involving drones in the Middle East and sanctions or whatever you want to say to get these people to convert to your view? I mean, if 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 several major countries, let's say China and Russia now decide that they don't like the view of an open Internet, they don't like the view of free speech and all that. What the heck are you going to do about that? I mean, there's a big difference between deciding all of a sudden that you're going to impose Western values on a small, relatively defenseless country, or you're going to impose, you know, United States values on a large chunk of the world that is hostile to them. This idea that it's our job or responsibility or duty or whatever you want to say to take our belief system and spread it elsewhere, while it may be morally defensible and justifiable theoretically, has Awful, realistic, real-world consequences.
0: Oh, I agree. I I don't dispute any of that.
1: Thermonuclear war once upon a time.
0: Well, yeah, yeah, but what you're describing is a practical limitation on our good intentions. It's possible to apply pressure to a society in an attempt to make that society a better place. And it's possible to fail in doing that, given how hard a task it is. And to make it a worse place, to create more suffering than, than was otherwise there, uh, and it, it presumably it's possible to to succeed uh, and actually liberate a people who would have been uh, immiserated for another generation under the current regime. But you came in there and changed things for the better. I think. I think. And anything in between those two poles is possible. I totally accept the spirit of your skepticism that that we are not well-equipped to invade uh, and painlessly uh, and surgically remove a bad regime and then through mere conversation and our powers of persuasion change the retrograde attitudes of the population and improve things. This is not something we can easily do. And so I think our uses of force really should be trimmed down to uh, what is absolutely necessary to get the worst actors out there who we know are already culpable for terrible crimes.
1: Yes. But what do you do about the worst actors that we cozy up to? I mean, one of the complaints I always had during the Cold War is that, you know, this was always portrayed as a values conflict, right? The values of the ethical West versus, you know, the people that wouldn't allow elections and, di- and ruled their people, you know, against their will. And then we would go as a country and help either keep dictators in power or force dictators into power over people because we were afraid that if those people were allowed to vote, they might vote for our adversaries. In other words, not living up to the very ideals we we claim the entire ideological conflict was about. So for example when we talk about I mean one of the parts of George W Bush's speech after 9/11 where he talked about okay the gloves are off and you know if you support terrorism you know you're in trouble you you know you're either with us or against us and then right. your hands off a bunch of our allied countries because whether it's oil or whatever you say, I mean Saudi Arabia is the, the great example for all time, but they're not the only ones. Um, but but I mean when when you let them off the hook, to me that's all bets are off. To me, that shows you the reality of the situation beyond the talking points. You know, there's a you know uh, there's a big difference between what governments, all governments say they're doing and what they're really doing. And I think sometimes we take them at face value too much and you need to look at see what they're really, so I mean, the Saudi Arabian thing is a perfect situation. If you're really going to defend Western values and, and try to take on what you might call radical or deadly Islam for people who think that they're going to paradise, don't you have to say we've had enough with Saudi Arabia? And let's understand something. When I said we take their oil the people of Saudi Arabia are not the ones getting that oil wealth unless they're getting it trickle down indirectly it's this cabal of people that run the country that we help keep in power it's a very different situation than if Saudi Arabia had free and fair elections in some sort of representative system but we keep the one they have. Getting,
0: I mean they, that's the problem with Saudi Arabia it's the problem with any of these petro-states where they can just pull their wealth out of the ground they can just buy off the people and never have to respond to their political concerns. They just pull they their flog wealth out them. the ground They don't and, buy them
1: off. They flog them if they say something against the regime.
0: Well, yeah, but very few do. And yes, I mean, I'm not defending Saudi Arabia at all. I'm just saying that the fact that we can't do anything other than pay lip service to our values when confronted with uh, with Saudi Arabia in particular is a symptom of our total dependence on oil. But if oil were worthless, we could take a very different line with them. I'm not saying we would invade them because that would be analogous to all the other misadventures we've had in the Middle East. But we could take a very hard line, whether it was sanctions or just non-collaboration with them. We could treat them like the world began to treat South Africa during apartheid.
1: Because can you win this war, Sam, unless you... I mean, that's what I said to go back to the George W. Bush speech when he said, the gloves are off, you're with us or against us and then, I mean, you got to win this war by by shutting down the ideological fountainheads. And when you don't, it looks like you don't either want to win the war or you don't think we can win the war in this ideological Islamic hearts and minds conflict. If you don't go to ground zero of the people polluting the hearts and minds and saying, listen, the first thing that has to stop is this money to these religious Schools that tell people they're going to heaven if they kill an infidel, right? Yeah, well, I think that's certainly part of it. No question. I mean,
0: Saudi Arabia has been exporting Wahhabi Islam for decades, and while while they're a a minority in the in Muslim world, they have captured most of the mosques worldwide. Yeah, who's uh,
1: making the textbooks? Exactly. Yeah, so
0: they they just they export the literature. They they create the madrasas. Uh, and there, it's all very well funded, and perversely, we've been funding both sides of the war on terror, so that, that that's a, a genuine problem. But everything you've said here, you've sort of you've said it in the spirit, I think, of thinking that it muddies the water uh, ethically, and I don't think it does. It just muddies it practically. So yes, there are dictators we have not been able to distance ourselves from, and have, have even actually decided to support. Simply because they're the lesser of two evils, because presumably would want a better dictator there. We would want a, a truly benign one, but because there's not a benign one on offer, we back uh, that horse because the alternative would be Islamic theocracy. And what? Uh, in, but what happens then when the,
1: when the people who finally overthrow that government that wouldn't have been able to stay in power that long without our support? What happens when those people inevitably? I mean, if you believe the old idea that the people will inevitably take power back, what happens when they inevitably do? I mean, this is the problem we have with Iran. There were a lot of people that made a lot of money and a lot Mm -hmm. of foreign policy hay by overthrowing the Mohammed Mosaddegh government in 1952-1953. There was a whole generation of, of, of American policymakers that, that benefited from that. The problem is, is when they're dead and gone, in 1979, there's a revolution, and the people that look like the bad guys at that point are the people that kept the regime in power that everyone's mad at. So long term, we have modern policymakers paying for the temporary success of past policymakers. And that that you could say that that's ancient history and water under the bridge, but we continue to play that same dynamic over and over again.
0: Yeah, and it's a problem and it's, it's, it plays out differently depending on the country. So the, the, the Arab Spring has been different in different countries. Tunisia is not Egypt and it's not Libya and, and it's, it, there, there are differences. What we have to get to at some point is a majority of human beings converging on the same kinds of values and aspirations and how you work that magic is the problem we're discussing and there you know I think there are transitional moments in societies where the the is not ready for democracy if you just open the polls and and you know stain everybody's finger purple what you will have gotten is a vote for a sunni regime that is is going to turn around and kill all the shia in the, in their midst uh, or vice versa and be in you know, in perpetual war with the west and if you had just engineered things slightly differently or just waited uh, 10 years or a generation or just got lucky, you would have a society that's ready for democracy, that has—that is sick of theocracy. I mean, arguably, Iran is closer to that than, than most— countries we might name here i, I Listen, think that-
1: i'm a th- wait thousand percent on the iran thing and i think that would be the biggest game changer in the region and of course everything we're doing is probably working against what, what what a good outcome for us would be in that region but here's here's the problem with the tone though sam the tone is that somehow you know when we say we're these people are not ready for democracy we act as though we are part of a cabal of nations or or an international community that gets to decide this and say you know what el salvador finally You're ready for democracy and 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 by the way on a probationary and you know, we'll see how you use it But I mean, I guess what I'm saying is that there's there's a part that just says the part of what upsets I think people in smaller countries is this idea that it's our job to make the decision when you're ready for this or that See what I'm saying? Well, it's, it's just we have to
0: pull whatever levers are within reach so that we we have a decision uh, with respect to who we're going to collaborate with economically or politically. So, it's an, again, I think a, a good analogy is uh, South Africa. At a certain point, the global culture decided, all right, what's going on in South Africa is ethically and politically unacceptable. The jury is no longer out on questions of this kind, and it's time we not only paid lip service to this, but we actually made our common interests known globally
1: but Sam Uh, that's not how it happened our government pushed back against that forever i mean in the 80s i was protesting the reagan administration's involvement in, in helping to prop up the south african regime it was i mean my god there were artists who wouldn't play the city i mean it was almost right. a grassroots effort as opposed to a government effort and a lot of times people that were against that were fighting our own government who was still supporting that regime they were yeah, the yeah, last no, ones I'm to not, cave
0: there's there's a we're all we're trailing a history of at best you know moral morally confused policy with respect to our, our, propping up or supporting or collaborating with foreign governments that that have been acting badly uh, domestically. So yeah, there's no. We have a lot to atone for. But, but the but question are you, is, are you making when, it? when can you, when can you start being good? when can you start being wise in any given moment? I think moment you're making
1: an assumption that, that, that there's a motivation amongst the people who are decision makers that doesn't exist. I think you're thinking that they're thinking, now, who can we collaborate with and, and who, who shares our values, when I don't think that's their intention at all. Now, they may have a PR firm that they hire who says what their intentions are, but I think their intentions are resource extraction, making sure we have a footprint in the region here, there, and the other, I mean, I don't think that, that these benign ideas that you're talking about are actually being debated very much in the halls of power. And I've been there. I've, I've been at some of these debates where part of what we talk about is, okay, who's going to use whose spare parts in their military so that we can sell spare parts? I mean, I mean, I think your, your idea that they have these discussions about international morality at the highest levels is only for public consumption. I don't think they do.
0: No, well, I think I would admonish you, just as you admonished me not to take at face value what the the PR representative of any government would say uh, as to the nobility of their motives, I would admonish you and your listeners not to be so cynical as to imagine that no one ever has good, even self-sacrificing motives in government. I mean, they, the governments are just filled with people like you and me, and there's the whole range. There are psychopaths in there, and there are undoubtedly a few saints in there, and everything in between. And So the motives are always mixed. And yes, we have uh, a—we privilege our uh, well-being, our being, you know, based on the nation-state model uh, of our national interests over the interests of other countries to some degree. But the question is, you know, what what is the coefficient there? I don't know. It's it's not—and it's—I think it's always coming down. Uh, And when you look at cases like, you know, Rwanda, right, where we didn't get involved— but now we retrospectively feel like we should have been involved because we just presided over a genocide. Those are cases where we don't really have interests apart from humanitarian ones. And there, I think there are pure examples where, you know, the, deciding to get, however tentatively, back into a war in Iraq to save the Yazidis from annihilation at the hands of ISIS. That was, you know, many people think we didn't do enough. We didn't act quickly enough. Um, We seem to have done just enough to save a a fair number of people um, from starving to death on the side of a mountain. That wasn't based on our lust for oil or – I mean we don't – the Obama administration doesn't want to go near Iraq or Syria uh, with a a 10-foot pole. They're being dragged, kicking and screaming toward any involvement there because of what a fiasco the last war was, the last two wars were. And yet – we had to do something there because to do nothing was to just watch women and children buried alive, you know, crucified. I mean just the worst of the worst of human misbehavior. And again, it's not – you but have Sam, to attribute why do they at care? least your own level of moral compunction to most people in government. Now, the, the system is stacked against them, but – No, I, but let, it, me th- th- let me throw an alternative
1: – Let me throw an alternative scenario at you. The alternative scenario is we let people as if it was our job. If we were the God country, Mm -hmm. uh, we let people die in huge numbers all over the world every day. The reason that the government cared about that was because it was going to be a political embarrassment and horrible nightmare for the policymakers at hand if it looked like, you know, all of a sudden they were going to have blood on their hands the way the entire situation was framed if they didn't act. I think they acted for political reasons and to protect their ass because if they, if those people, if all of a sudden the nightly news is showing all these dead women and children, who are they going to blame? They're going to blame the administration for not acting. It's not some high-minded idea. The administration didn't go into the Sudan where a bunch of people were all of a sudden in trouble in a place like Darfur. They went in a place because they thought, oh my God, our hands are dirty here. We're going to take a huge political hit. The Republicans will destroy us in Congress. We'll look weak. We'll look like we're losing Iraq. Do something. So in other words, what about, what about
0: Bosnia? Where do you put that on the absolutely
1: a very similar situation? I mean, there've been a lot of good books written about the situation in Bosnia and how, when, when the difference really could have been made, uh, we didn't do anything. And listen, by the way, I, 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 at the time I was a person who was absolutely up in arms about this, but I didn't think it was the U.S.'s job to go in there and fix it. And then what ends up happening is, and there's a lot of stuff about David Petraeus and, and other arguments at the high levels about utilizing American air power to sort of, uh, send a message to, to, I mean, there's a lot of backstory in here connected with Russia and everything in that region. But but all of it happened sort of after the fact, and we ended up destroying a ton of Serbian infrastructure and probably not saving a ton of lives. Um, but, but I would argue, as I always do, that these sorts of situations are better to stay out of because even if you have the purest of motives, when you get down to the bottom line, it never turns out the way we're hoping it will.
0: And That's really, you think that's the historical verdict on Bosnia that We didn't save many, many, many Muslim lives and uh, and that it wasn't a a good thing uh, in the end to have knocked Serbia
1: back into into line. I think by the time all of that happened, it was essentially most of it over. If you wanted to, to really get involved, you would have had to have gotten involved in 93, 94, you know, back early when these massacres were, for the most part, taking place. I think it was a sort of a of a bombing after the barn door had closed. Now, you know, if you're going to say, OK, Dan, when situations like that happen, what is the job of the international community to intervene? Well, in my mind, there ought to be a European group who, when things are happening in their backyard, you know, put all sorts of 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 diplomatic and maybe more forceful pressure i would leave those up to the people in the region to solve those kinds of problems what i object to is that every time there's an international hotspot you know the giant global eye of the media and everything else turns to us I don't want that job. I don't think most American taxpayers want to fund that job and certainly send their kids to to carry out the imperial grunt side of it. And yet, I don't think we ever get asked. So when I talk about my objection to this, it's that we don't have any say whether or not we involve ourselves in this at all. When do the American people get to say, we've seen this movie, it often turns out poorly, we're going to sit on the sidelines and see if the Europeans can do a better job handling something in their backyard?
0: Well, I, I fully agree that this shouldn't be America's job, that we need some global institution that focuses the appropriate use of force now i mean the problem is the u.n is broken and there's no one else to do this job or there hasn't been in recent it's designed years designed broken what was that
1: it, it was designed broken right very, when you have five nations that essentially have veto power you designed it broken
0: yeah yeah so th- that's a problem and but but the, the the reductio ad absurdum from my point of view of The kinds of concerns you're expressing, though, is pacifism, a a fundamental unwillingness to ever get involved, even if you have the power to do so. And I think the problem with that is then you are just allowing the thugs of the world to inherit the earth and just create immense amounts of human misery generation after generation with no corrective insight. The world needs some way to respond to the malignant despotism of like uh, something like North Korea or Iraq under Saddam Hussein or just the imperial ambitions of a, a state that starts gobbling up its neighbors. And what we're talking about, at least to my ear, is how difficult a project that is rather than whether or not there should be such a project. But I, I, I keep hearing you say things that cast fundamental doubt on the project Itself and seem to recommend a kind of isolationism for the U.S. at this point in history and just a, a an unwillingness to use force even when that force can be surgically applied without too much collateral damage or any and uh, where you can actually get the bad guys and create a, a context in which if moderates and reformers and rational people are going to seize the stage— there's not somebody with a whip or a kalashnikov
1: preventing it i've always thought it was interesting that advocating a foreign policy that's the same as more than 95 percent of the countries in the world that that would be called isolationist because 95 percent of the countries in the world are not isolationist and yet i'd be happier with their foreign policy than ours it's a foreign policy that says that like any nation state we have interests But our interests are not everywhere all the time. When you can say we go to war to protect our vital interests, but our vital interests are everything or anything, then you can go to war for any reason. I mean, there's a book and you've probably read it. It's called Not a Suicide Pact by Richard Posner, who tries to give you a rundown of the Constitution allowing basically anything in times of war to Mm -hmm. safeguard the nation the problem with this view cuz it's certainly right i mean if you examine the legal history the constitution gives extraordinary power to the president and the executive branch to run wars in wartime the problem with the thinking is what happens if it's always wartime what if you have temporary martial law forever and and that's you know the the founding Members of this country's elite, and this was not a, obviously they did not have a unified opinion on this, but I happen to be like a Jefferson fan, for example, Madison fan. These were the kind of people who thought that long wars were the deaths of republics, hmm. and they didn't see these powers that they were giving, these extreme powers to the president, to be permanent things, but they didn't envision a war that never ended. We're in a war now. That essentially never ends. And part of the reason why is because we are this whip you talked about, right? We have to be because who else is going to do this job? I'm suggesting that to destroy the republic, which I think it will do if it hasn't already, in order to fight this conflict is to lose your soul trying to save some sort of a global ideological Better, good. I mean, you can argue all these wonderful good things. It's a little like, you know, if I could find an analogy, it's a little like making sure that you put your own oxygen mask on when the airliner is dropping ten thousand feet before you give it to the person next to you. We're going to destroy what makes this country great, trying to push the ideals that we feel make it great. Well, I guess
0: I'm I am reluctant to keep seeing this
1: through the lens of.
0: Our national interest and, and our country alone in the world doing this. I, I think it is a a problem of a global civilization. And when I look at something like uh, Rwanda, for instance, what do, what do you think? What should the world have done in Rwanda once that genocide was getting started?
1: Well, if you recall the way it it turned out, it happened quick. I mean, the whole thing was like a month. A couple months. Yeah, and and really, it was just like the Bosnian situation. There was a very intense period followed by, you know, a long lingering sort of aftershock. But the thing is, is it was interesting, I remember at the time, watching world governments try to react to something that was unfolding so quickly right and that's where you heard lots of talk about you know a ready deployment force and all these sorts of things from a military standpoint the best thing would have been at the time for the neighbors in rwanda to have gone in there They were the ones close by and done something to settle the situation right in other words you know when you look at how we tried to deal with somalia which arguably is a is a comparable situation right with the starvation in somalia we send lots of uh, aid the globe sends aid to that area but warlords prevent it. mohammed adid and those guys prevent it from reaching the people we're after. So you have to go in, clear out the warlords so that the food can reach the starving people. But look what happened. We, you know, yep. it's, a, it's a little like what the police always say when they go to a domestic violence situation, trying to help one or, or or both parties involved in beating up on each other. And they get there and often both parties unite against the officers that are there only to help. In a funny way, we could have gone into Rwanda and found ourselves bogged down there against both sides. I mean, if history is any guide, that happens way more than we assume ahead yeah, of time. Well, I,
0: well, your analogy to domestic violence is interesting because I do view this all ultimately— once you shed the idea of uh, some sanctity around the nation-state structure as a kind of crime problem. So it's, you know, North Korea is rather like, you know, the state of Florida being held hostage by some maniac. And if that were the case, we would figure out how to help the people in Florida because they're part of our nation— uh, and it would be a domestic violence situation. We, we, we would respond to, if you're going to respond to, or, or you want the state to respond when you start hearing screams coming from your neighbor's house and you realize that the guy who you, you, you sort of know who lives next door to you is beating his wife and his kids and uh, he's too scary for you to deal with on your own, uh, it seems to me you sure hope... Somebody qualified can kick down the door and stop a a murder in progress if that's what's happening. And there is some global foreign policy analog to that which we need to figure out how to create and maintain in such a way as to minimize all of the sort of chaotic – Secondary events that uh, that you're you're talking about, and it's it's a huge problem. But I, I keep hearing you flirt with just abdicating responsibility for that, and I, I agree it's not the U.S. response, the U.S.'s responsibility alone. But we're, we're in various moments in history where uh, there is no one else to do the job, and and granted we've done it badly. But you seem to be recommending that, as a matter of principle, we should acknowledge. That we should never attempt such an intervention of that kind because it's impossible to save the wife. She will always unite with you against her, uh, unite against you with her husband, and you'll wind up fighting both.
1: Well let's understand part of the reason there is no one else to do this job is because that is official documented written US foreign policy we will have no military competitors i mean that's that's the written thing we're not going to allow there to be a competitor who could do this job so then when you say only the united states can do this job that's cuz that's the way we want it first of all the second thing is I mean, I would compare our rescue efforts in this case, if we want to keep the analogy going to a hostage situation, that we have this heavily armed and very efficient and very high quality SWAT team that we send into these situations. And yet, historically speaking, most of the time we do, they end up shooting the hostages, destroying the facility, and the bad guys often get away. At what point do you turn around and say, listen, theoretically, this SWAT team idea is a great one, but our track record sucks. I mean, at a certain point, you have to turn around and go, what are we learning from this? I mean, it's the same reason that the original guys around George hw bush the first time around didn't want to go into iraq and topple saddam hussein they looked at that situation and said oh my god that's a hornet's nets that'll fall apart and we'll have sectarian violence and all this kind of stuff and then after 9 11 all of a sudden we decide you know what that awful idea from 10 12 years ago sounds great all of a sudden or 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 we're willing to risk it again and once again the swat team kills the hostages the bad guys get away and the shopping center burns down so i mean at a certain point is is this is this passivity on my part that you see this isolationist tendency, as you call it, really a way to say, let's not make the same mistakes we make. And instead of saying we'll do a better job with the SWAT team this time, why don't we turn around and say maybe this SWAT team idea is really much more effective if we use it, for example, in our hemisphere, than if we keep going around and create new commands on new continents around the world to extend what we do to Africa, for example, with AFRICOM.
0: Well, well, uh, well again, you're you're you seem to be just arguing that the U.S., can't do this alone and that we're overextended. And now you're, you're suggesting that, to, con- to continue with the analogy, that the Germans and the British and the Kenyans and, and these other countries uh, that uh, may or may not be on the border of any uh, new emergency uh, should have their own SWAT teams so that, we, so that ours doesn't have to get involved. Isn't that the way it's
1: always happened, Sam? We, that's how it's always happened. People in re- regional powers, you know, deal with regional situations and, th- and and those are their hemispheres of operation. It's like that's why we had a Monroe Doctrine in this hemisphere.
0: Yeah, well, I, but I don't think our, given the the level of war fatigue now, I don't think there are many people in our government who would dispute that. And, and you know, I, I certainly noticed that we sell weapons rather avidly to virtually anyone who wants to buy them. So the idea that we are trying to keep a monopoly on power military power, I don't see it. I, I understand we, we want to have the strongest armed forces in the world for reasons of, you know, ultimate paranoia, a war with China or any other great power. But I think uh, we want people other than ourselves to do this work because this will not be news to you. I mean, the, the politi- we are hostage to a political cycle where every four years, where the time horizon for any of the uh, – for thinking about any of these problems is trimmed down to a mere four years at the presidential level. And it's – that I view as as a very important piece of this, that that our domestic politics is just about the worst piece of software imaginable to be – running a significant part of the foreign policy of a global civilization
1: well let me piggyback on that because i think that's a good point and i think but i think it plays into this dynamic and and clouds the idea of these good intentions that you keep hoping a a major state would act in for example solving rwandan crises crises Mm. before they happen um there's a lot of money in all this sam i mean if and 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 money becomes a dynamic where okay you have a 9 11 attack and and the, the amount of money being thrown to security related firms and and outlets and establishments skyrockets now that money then makes its way into our political system what if the threat level then declined how much political pressure based on campaign contributions and all that do you think there's going to be from people whose 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 stock prices and everything else depends upon the threat level remaining shall we say, vigorous. Um, How much do you think that creates a dynamic where the political system is unable to respond to changing situations where we must always be concerned about terrorism to the nth degree because a lot of the people making money off of it are then funneling that money to our politicians who are then told, make sure you don't get soft on terrorism at any time. In other words, who do not have the flexibility, politically speaking, to look at a situation and say, do we want to get involved or do we not want to get involved? Let's see if we could sell some more tanks to these people.
0: Yeah, I think that's worth worrying about. I don't think that is the main variable there in, in keeping our perception of the threat level high. I think it's interesting to consider what happened to President Obama when he took office because he was someone who was against the Iraq war. He was someone who was very dovish in his uh, proclamations before becoming president by comparison certainly with Bush and, and um uh, anyone on the on the you know, neocon side of um, our foreign policy, and many liberals expected that he and he expected and he certainly claimed that he was going to undo uh, many of the wrongs that his predecessor had perpetrated. And so you know, he's going to just release all the people. Uh, he was going to close Guantanamo, etc. And then he gets into office and very quickly begins behaving in a very different way. And now, according to the left, and and even by some objective measures, he is viewed as even more hawkish in certain respects than than Bush and uh, many neoconservatives. And the question is, what happened to him? Was this some kind of, you know, Manchurian candidate phenomenon? Or um, does he have these hidden... Financial interests that you worry are corrupting his thinking process. Did he just buy a ton of stock in, you know, the Carlisle group? and now he's got this this mixed motivation, and he wants to keep the war on terror always ramped up. and he you know he owns stock in the next best drone maker, et cetera. I don't think that's what happened. I think what happened is he finally became president. He finally became privy to the daily White House briefing, the top secret briefing that tells you, exactly what analysts think is the kinds of threats are, uh, they think are pointed at us on a daily basis, and it is totally terrifying. And the level of malevolence directed at us, the fact that there really are people trying to figure out how to execute acts of nuclear terrorism and biological terrorism, uh, and that we have some information on what they're doing— that will keep the threat level high. That will keep us flying drones. And again, there are mixed motives. There's somebody raking in a lot of money, but based on the status quo. But I think we actually live in a world that is becoming increasingly terrifying. In in one sense, is is it's less terrifying than it used to be. In many senses, I mean, the Mongols are not going to come over the hills suddenly, but people you've never heard of and, and decimate you. And it doesn't seem like we're going to. We're likely to get into an intentional nuclear exchange with Russia, although an accidental one or, or, or one that, that, that happens in some way inadvertently, I think, is a, is a real concern uh, given the existence of these bombs. But we are in a world where it is becoming easier and easier for uh, non-state actors and even a few individuals to just cause global-level catastrophes, economic catastrophes, environmental catastrophes, and and acts of terrorism that are orders of magnitude beyond anything we've ever seen. And it, the, it's the president's job to anticipate this and respond. And that's I think that is a how you dial down the threat level given the continuous nature of the threat and the fact that it's only going in one direction in terms of technology empowering individuals and small groups more and more and
1: more. Um, I think it's, that's a, it's a real challenge. Let me, let me address both points one yeah. at a time. Uh, th- this is a perception thing. As a history nut, and, and I'm sure you know this, but, but I'm just going to throw it out there. There is no way on earth, no way on earth, you could say that we are not magnitudes of order safer than we were than when I was growing up. And I mean magnitudes of order. I try to explain to people that try to give me their worst case scenario for a terrorist. And they're going to smuggle some nuclear device into some U.S. harbor or something, maybe kill a million people. And I try to point out that we had tens of thousands Thousands, we still probably do, nuclear weapons aimed at this country on hair-trigger alert all the time. We did disaster drills in our schools growing up. We had several near-misses. Go read anything from the Eisenhower administration, and you will you know crap your pants I mean it is absolutely and then you think to yourself our worst case scenario now would have been a best case scenario during the Cold War if nuclear weapons were used at all to only have one go off people would have been going thank goodness that wasn't worse so I think it's a perception question we've we are much safer than we were a couple decades ago but we feel worse because some buildings were hit by airplanes the second thing is you had mentioned the almost Manchurian candidate like uh, change in the Obama administration between the guy who ran in 2008 and the guy who's governing. And we talk about that a lot. There was a a really good recent book by Michael Glennon, who used to be uh, 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 in the Foreign Relations uh, Committee people. He's an international law professor where he tried to address just that one point, which is, why don't we get this change that these people run on and of course there's a couple of different ways you could go with that one is they never intended the change that this is a campaign promise boom you know it's proverbial everybody knows that you lie the other is that and this is what glennon's point is in his book double government is that there's a government that never changes right you had talked about the the vagaries in our system where every four years or eight years we get a a turnover in government You know, when I was at the CENTCOM meeting um, a while back that they invited me to, which was a surreal experience for a podcaster, but when I was Mm -hmm. there, it was fascinating listening to the people at the table who oversee sometimes 25,000, 30,000 federal employees, but they've been in their position for 30 years, right? So governments change and come and go, but these guys remain. They're the famous bureaucrats, I guess you could say, but they're the only ones who know where all the stuff is, and if I need a screwdriver, where do I go? And, And so when the politicians, get into these positions they're the they turn to these guys right the, the the custodians of government maybe you could call them and glennon's book is essentially saying that those people in a sense manage to handle the political operatives and 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 the classic example he uses in his book which supposedly every president gets confronted with is that you are a victim of the choices that the establishment in government gives you. So, for example, Obama might have this Rwanda situation you mentioned flare up again, and he might say, "Okay, what are our options? And the the generals may come to him, say, "Okay, you have three choices. And Glennon points out in his book, they're usually horrifying, terrible and awful, but somewhat realistic. And Obama even said, I guess, at one of these things, you guys are giving me no choices. And what Glennon is saying in his book is, that's how it is it's the old line mm-hmm. about how do you control an absolute dictator sometimes it's you only filter the stuff you want him to know to him and then they make the decision you want so that's his point of view on the whole manchurian candidate thing my point is this attitude that we are threatened as never before is not just wrong it's manifestly wrong well no and by,
0: but just to be clear i'm not saying that i i concede everything you said about us being objectively safer at least along those lines. I mean, having a Cold War with the Soviet Union that was um, at its apex of uh, animosity, uh, that was absolutely, by every measure, worse, except for the fact that the the, the Soviet Union was rational in the sense that they, they were no more eager to die than we are. And, and that's one way in which the force of global jihad, I think, is, is very different from communism but sam that's in Uh,
1: hindsight that's not the way it was framed at the time well no but i'm
0: just saying in in, i think we have a a sense of what was what is true that that there was no ideology within communism that made immediate death for
1: oneself and one's children look like a good thing Uh, no no but the idea that a first strike was survivable and useful yeah, oh, yeah. and logical. Okay, All but, that stuff was built into it.
0: Okay, but that but that's different than a first strike being uh, totally fine because uh, you're going to get to paradise. It doesn't even matter who, who dies. Paradise awaits. That breaks down the, the logic of mutually assured destruction fundamentally. I mean, there's just no. You can't have a cold war with the 19 hijackers who are wa- who want to wake up in the morning and hit the wall at 400 miles an hour. So. And so far, but let's leave that aside well, but, but let, I,
1: let's address though the, the, the way you solve that I mean so we had a similar situation with the Japanese in the second world war right where you had guys on islands 35 years later who wouldn't surrender without the emperor saying it was okay I right. mean they had an emperor right so we get back to what we were talking about about the caliph and the pope and and having someone who could at least say this is heretical and this is not I mean if, if you want to get to the germ of how maybe you solve this problem realize that the, the emperor telling the Japanese people uh, uh, to follow the directives of the occupying power or whatever made all the difference in the world so how could you set that up in the islamic world so that there were enough folks of credible background that people would listen to in the islamic world to say when you send your child out to be a suicide bomber not only are you not going to heaven with 72 virgins really your son's probably burning in hell somewhere i mean when when you turn the carrots and sticks on their head
0: Right, that that would be a great development. It's it's difficult to do given the fact that there is no central authority in the Sunni world, uh, and the and the caliph is not really analogous to a pope, and the fact that you can't make, or it would be a very heavy lift to make the notion of martyrdom and the notion of paradise where martyrs go. Uh, anathema. I mean, that's that's very difficult theologically. I don't know what hairs you have to split in order to make that. I talk to Muslims
1: uh, all the time who say it's an interpretive question. It's just like but, jihad is an interpretive question. But it's, it, it's
0: not—they uh, uh, they only have so many tools to work with. You can't—every possible reading of those—of the relevant passages uh, is not available to you, and you are constrained to make some rational sense of what, the, what it actually says in the text. And— what it says in the text is, you know, jihad as holy war is a real central position within Islam. It's not just an inner spiritual struggle and uh, there's nothing better to lay your life down for than to defend the faith against aggressors and aggression is is uh, understood in all kinds of ways that, that are incompatible with our, our current view of free speech and tolerance, etc., um, but I don't. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. I want to concede that that we have gotten safer in in many many ways, and that that we have a distorted view of the significance of events like September 11th. Actually, Bill Maher made made this point brilliantly at one point. He said he pointed to Hurricane Katrina and just the devastation economically as a result. You know, billions of dollars lost. You know, a city flattened. Uh, something like a 1, thousand, twelve hundred, eighteen hundred people died. I forget specifically. And he said, you know, just imagine if that had been a terrorist act, if someone had, you know, imposed a terrorist hurricane on us, we would we would have been totally destabilized by it. We would have had a a, a yet another response analogous to the multi-trillion dollar expenditure of of wealth and uh, the multiple war uh, response of 9-11. And yet, because now this is just a natural disaster, we just sh- more or less shrugged it off and, and, and continued about our day as a society. And one could certainly argue that we need to be thicker skinned than we are with respect to specific human-caused mayhem. and that Threat we
1: triage.
0: What was that? Threat triage is what yeah. we mean, yeah. Yeah, uh, and it's, it is also true that, that conflict worldwide has come down, and, and my friend Steven Pinker wrote a, a truly magisterial book on this topic, The Better Angels of Our Nature, how violence has declined more or less uh, linearly in in the last—just uh, o- over the centuries, uh, that your, your chances of dying violently today, even with a perpetual threat of global terrorism— uh, are minuscule compared to what they used to be, and, and they were far worse in any traditional society. So all of that's true. What has changed, however, though, is that the power of one person or s- small groups of people to harm vast numbers of people, that is going up. It is getting easier and easier to to create terrible suffering for even millions of people, if you are a, 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 a so-called lone wolf and I, I, I think technology is always is, is tending to take us further and further in that direction that the technology there's an asymmetry between the, the technology that prevents that kind of thing and the, the technology that initiates it it's just it's, kind of, it's just the the principle is just easier to break things than to fix them or to prevent people from breaking them uh, and you see this with cyber crime and cyber terrorism Uh, And I think you see it uh, across the board when when we're talking about, you know, we're meandering into a future where people will be able to create their own novel viruses on their desktop. And uh, in the same way, I mean, biological viruses, not computer viruses, in the same way they can create computer viruses now. And we're not intelligently steering a a safe course through all those developments. And so I I think that is one concern. The other concern is, just look at what, I mean, as you said, the the best possible case in the Cold War would be just one bomb going off. But if you look at the consequences of one bomb going off, or what would be the consequences of a of a single act of nuclear terrorism in Los Angeles or New York, where let's let's say let's say just a hundred thousand people died directly, right? But you know, you render some some area of a major city uninhabitable for uh, quite some period of time, depending on on what kind of bomb it is. But the with the global economic consequences of that, and the and and the and the political fallout from that, and the the Patriot Act on steroids overreaction to that, all of that is. I feel like we are we are poised to be far more destabilized by that than we have ever been. And I say we as a as a global civilization because of how interlinked and interdependent we we are um economically and and uh, it just is a matter of our infrastructure across the board and so i think that there are greater implications to killing 5000 10000 100000 people than there have ever been, but but let me show you, you where the problem
1: is, though. And the problem would be okay. You, you you mentioned the perfect situation, and this is maybe where I differ with most people. But I'm weird and admittedly weird. Um, but but here's the thing: like we call that nine twelve, the day after the next big terror attack, right? Not a not a hundred right. people, but another couple of thousand, right? And and when you look at that, you say you talk to the experts, and the experts all say that it's a numbers game and it's an inevitability. It's going to happen sometime. The job is to protect yourself from as many of these things. as you can. But if it's an inevitability, and if it's got a system wrecking potential and I would suggest exactly what you did, that when 9/12 happens, you can forget any of these constitutional protections. We're going to ratchet things down as much as we did after 9-11, but from where we are now. Right. So mm. we're going to ratchet things down crazy. And, and, and it's a predictable human overreaction. So if you know those things are going to happen, why wouldn't you be doing something now in a prophylactic sense to 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 inure yourself to that damage in other words if it's up to me, I've got a waiting period that I'm working on right now. I'm going to work on some legislation that says you got to have a cooling off period after the next attack. You can close any loopholes that make you, you know, imminently vulnerable. That that attack may have may have made clear to you, you know, okay, they can use airplanes to run into buildings. Let's fix that. But mm. no Patriot Act number two until things have sat down for a few months and people have had a chance to get their wits back. In other words, by not doing that, we are opening up the door to legislating while under the influence of total fear if you wanted to prevent that you could be working on that now but there's people that don't well, want I think that's a great idea I think, yeah, I but think wants that but nobody to work meme on that meme is
0: that is a meme well worth spreading and uh, I think a cooling off period I mean you, you wait until at least the flags have come off the cars and people are able to speak rationally about what has just happened um, I think that's a great idea well, shoot, Sam, is this where you end a show
1: <laughs> where we bow tie <laughs> well, the, it all in a but, nice agreement at the end?
0: <laughs> but but before we end, I actually want – I do have a question for you because I feel like this is something I haven't thought about enough and it, it's very much in the news and, and it dovetails nicely with what we have been speaking about. Um, th- this whole conf- Confederate flag issue I think is, a, is the same problem in microcosm where we have – the we who feels that our values are are very much supersede the values of people who are um, stuck in another decade, if not another century, of um, moral order. And I'm wondering, is there there some sort of counter-narrative about this Confederate flag that actually separates it from the history of racism and slavery in a way that is convincing? Or is this just a, a case where... You, ha- you have people who really feel that it would have been better if the South had won the Civil War, uh, just holding on to their relics.
1: I think that's a great question. And I had mentioned earlier that I had a conversation with somebody recently, and they were trying to talk about the South. And I think it was a good good analogy as an honor culture. Um, and, yeah. and he was lamenting, this was a media guy, and he was lamenting that you can't talk about the South in any sort of a positive way without mentioning the racism and the history of slavery and all that. And his point was there's a heck of a lot of good that gets thrown under the table because you you can't you just in this society, you have to mention the bad things at the same time. In my mind, there's the best argument in the world for getting rid of the Confederate flag, because it's just a reminder, maybe outside the South would be a good way to put it, of of stuff that maybe the South would love it to let people know that they've moved past. I'm assuming they have. I'm going with that. Um, I, I do think that I hear from people that talk about heritage and I understand heritage. But this is a perfect example of what you talked about, Sam, where, where you can sort of make things unacceptable. I mean, I'm a freedom guy. If you want to fly i am sorry, Southerners, but if you want to fly a swastika flag or a hammer and sickle flag or a North Vietnamese flag when we're in the Vietnam War, I'm okay with that, too. But maybe you could make it, and I, I, I'm, I'm shocked to find out that it's considered acceptable. I mean, when I see it, I do. I do a double take, and I turn my head, and I always wonder about the person who's flying it. Um, at the same time, there's people who are very passionate about that. I mean, I— If I'm a black person in the United States, if I'm a person of color of any kind, it's 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 offensive at the base level. We live in a free society, though, and I'm one of those people that believes in freedom. Now, here's the difference. You don't fly it over some state capital. I mean, I think that's I don't even see a gray area there. I don't know why those states have been flying it like that or getting away with flying it like that up till now. Some guy wants to fly it on the back of his truck. You know that's freedom. You want to fly a swastika, I'm okay with that too. But the state house? I mean, I don't I don't get that and never have.
0: Yeah, it, 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 that's what I'm I'm searching for here because I, it's it's totally clear cut from my point of view. But I'm just wondering if there's something I'm missing here because it, the analogy to the Nazi flag is um is there some point of view that I have not heard well expressed which makes that a false analogy? I mean, if, if you're going to fly uh, the the Nazi flag, or you're going to have a swastika tattooed on your forehead, you are expressing, really in the clearest possible way, an ideological commitment. And that ideology is genocidal, is anti-Semitic, and it it suggests a view of history where you you think you would rather live in, under the thousand-year Reich than under the current order. To my eye, the Confederate flag com- entails the same kind of ideological declaration that it is a statement that the cause of the south during the civil war was not only a, a cause worth fighting for it was the right one and it is a some kind of sacrilege or moral problem that the south lost and i'm i'm wondering if if all the people who think the the flag is quote uh, their tradition and and uh, morally blameless are actually never being forced to unpack what they mean by that and what they mean is yeah we really wish the south had won the civil war and i've just i ask this is something i just simply don't know i'm wondering if you have any understanding of what the psychology is around
1: or the culture is around venerating that flag here's what i don't understand I would love to interview these folks because whenever someone writes me a letter about this, they always say it's not about the slaves and it's not about the racial situation. It's about the right to secede. It's a right to protect your life. It's a right to do all... In other words, take every reason for the Civil War besides the slavery aspect, and they will say it's about that. Right. It's not about... Because the- nobody or very few people I've ever spoken to you know, say, yeah, I fly the flag because black people are inferior and blah, blah, blah. Um, I would love to see a notation then to the flag. You know, there's a lot of flags from other countries where something will happen and a new regime will take over or something will change and they'll, they'll alter the flag slightly, right? They'll put, some, you know, we always put another star on our flag when a new state came in. It seems to me you could put something like a chain being snapped or something in the center of the flag or something that indicated, you know, uh, that this flag uh, 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 isn't in favor of slavery or this is the, the post-slavery confederacy or whatever. <laughs> Welcome back, black people to the new south, whatever. So, something that just sort of said, oh, you know, the little chain on the flag being freed. Yeah, that shows that that this flag does not represent something that said that the slavery was the part we would like to see returned. Um, I'm not sure that makes anybody happy, but I got to tell you, whole different thing for me to see one of these things on a car than it is to see it on some state capitol somewhere.
0: Yeah. I mean, why well, I, would
1: you celebrate that? I mean, again, if you're this, I mean, why would you do, I, I, you know, this whole Southern heritage thing, it's hard for me to handle. For many
0: reasons that are related to what we've been talking about, That they have been an honor culture in a way that the North uh, and the coasts uh, really have never been. And uh, you still show, even psychological experiments show the difference between North and South in that respect. It's it's interesting. I, I think it's uh, it does seem pretty clear cut. And I, again, it, it seems like one of those moments where there's a tipping point where you think this is going to change very quickly. We've seen a tipping point on uh, the our national uh, view of gay rights and I- in a way that I don't think anyone expected 20 years ago. And um, one has to hope and has to try to engineer similar – moments of, of change in uh, the rest of the world. The question is, so what what tools do we have to do that? And one always hopes that they're conversational first, uh, economics second, and more coercive beyond that. And I, I actually don't think you and I disagree about, I mean, I, I think it's a matter of degree how we disagree. I don't think we have a, a categorical disagreement about wanting to have all the tools available. I just think we we may have a different sense of how circums- circumspect you have to be when it comes time to use force. Uh, but I, I we may not, in fact, even disagree there if we were talking about any individual case.
1: I would be interested to see uh, polls, if the questions were asked correctly, um, amongst Southerners, how they feel about it. And, you know, as I said in the emails that I'll get about this people will talk about it's just a pride in your heritage sort of thing I think the pity then is that there isn't an alternative symbol that if you wanted to say I'm a southerner and I'm proud of it that you could show that didn't have the same overtones that didn't appear to some people that you're not just saying yes I'm proud of the South but I'm proud of things the South did before the Civil War I mean the United States for example has a whole bunch of other flags that we've flown at one time or another the Gadsden flag all those kinds of things which different people can appropriate to show you know different aspects or 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 ideas seems to me if you're into southern pride and i don't think there's anything wrong with having pride in your heritage or your grandfathers or anything like that it's a pity that the symbol that you could use to show that has all sorts of other overtones that are not just deeply offensive but but that make people who are valued members of your community feel not just like second class citizens, but maybe even a little afraid. I mean, who would want to yeah. Yeah, oh, mean, yeah, who would want to show that in a way that that took other Southerners and instead of making them feel proud, made them feel the opposite of proud
0: and I don't know why one would want to really celebrate the right to secede at this point either. So that oh, I'm I,
1: okay it, with that. I mean, I think that if, if this is a free society, and if if Texas wants to leave, I want him to go. You know, I'm fine with that. And I think that you might even make a case that when we talk about solving some of our national ills, the problems are so giant, so huge and so complex that you might argue if this were not a country with you know national things that held us together, it might make perfect sense if this was some giant corporation to to break off pieces of it and make it more manageable. It obviously becomes a whole different question when you're talking about a nation. But in a theoretical concept, to me, I mean, if you don't want to be in the United States, I'm not sure I want you here. Right, right. Well, that's an interesting
0: topic. I don't, I don't know that we have the, um, uh, the. I, I certainly don't have the expertise to have strong opinions about it. But the the idea that uh, progress may be in the direction of decentralization, uh, yeah, disintegration politically. Uh, as opposed to global integration. I think that's, I would, I'm deeply suspicious of that intuition. I, I hold the other one, but um, I could imagine history run uh, either, as an experiment either way. And it is possible the, the results could be quite different and, and one would be altogether preferable.
1: I had an interesting conversation with the guy who used to do the old Connections series and and The Day the Universe Changed, James Burke, the science historian, mm-hmm. which was he's awesome. Just I would I would interview him every day if he'd let me. Um, but once was enough, I guess, for him. Uh, but he had said that that the way the world is evolving, this idea that bigger is better in terms of nation states may be part of the outmoded idea and that you could almost have someday virtual communities of like minded people who may not be connected geographically at all. All, but in well, a virtual or well, computer sense, yeah, well, we, we do
0: that. I mean, that's that's not it, not someday, that's now. I, when I look at my intellectual life, and in some important respects, my moral life, it is a matter of being integrated with a global community that holds these values and, and finds certain ideas compelling, and that just uh, is com- more or less totally uncoupled from. Geography, you know, if you it, it, science is the perfect case of this, science is an international enterprise, and science knows no borders, apart from funding, it, it knows no borders. And the conversation of science to be adequate to it, uh, you have to shed all of your provincial commitments. You, there's no such thing as Japanese science versus American science, as far as the science is concerned. And um, I think that that is a model for. Uh, much else that's that uh, we
1: care about the question is though are you going to be willing to tolerate the levels of variation that you're gonna get if you think it's weird to have a few countries that are beyond the pale wait till we have these groups that are the the, the groups that rally around the Nazi flag and decide that sounds good in a virtual community you know we're tolerating everything as far as I can tell on the internet
0: and that's uh, I'm as committed to to free speech as I think anyone, I think, I think you should be able to speak about anything and imagine anything and argue for anything. And uh, I think you should also be free to suffer the consequences to your reputation for doing that. So if you're somebody who's a neo-Nazi who wants to cover his body with, with the appropriate tattoos – You will be treated a certain way for having advertised those despicable opinions to all of humanity, and I think that's how we should keep those bad ideas in check. Insofar as they're just ideas being talked about and advocated, we have to push back against them through conversation. But uh, the, the problem, of course, is when people are motivated to act based on their ideas, and there is no remedy apart from resisting them. With force. And that's, uh, we keep finding ourselves in a borderless world. If, in fact, the, this the Burkean idea of going toward disintegration is, is the end game for a global civilization, well, then then the question is, how do you handle the Islamic State or North Korea or any other group that, that gets sufficiently empowered in that context? If, there, if there's no 800-pound guerrilla to do it, if there's no global mechanism to do it then you just have to in a very piecemeal way try to get your neighbors to agree that something should be done and i'm not sure that that works i'm not i wouldn't want my police force to be functioning that way where there'd be no real police force but just a bunch of vigilantes trying to reinvent a police force every time there's a problem and i think on on a global scale we we may um, not want that either
1: uh, you know I, it, it's one of those things where I think we're getting into theory versus results if 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 somebody could show me uh, that, that that the way we do things because because a lot of what you describe is kind of, The way we do things now it it might not be perfect but theoretically that's the construct we're working with and I would argue that that what you're seeing and so much of these world events that we tout as a reason why you have to have this global police force and what that these are many of them things that have grown out of failed past efforts on our part to do exactly what you're talking about the the unanticipated ramifications the blowback if you will from past attempts to do just that and and whereas theoretically i'm right on board with you that there you know you need some international police force you need someone to go into rwanda when they start chopping each other up in a practical sense when i watch that work I see something that not only usually doesn't do the job, but ends up coming back to haunt us in a way that like the two domestic violence victims that blame the police officers where we turn out to be the bad guy when maybe our intentions had been benign all the time, leaving that open for debate. But it's the difference between a theoretical construct and the way things are really working out in in, pra- in practical application.
0: Well, I think technology, as always, will keep changing this for Probably for good and for ill, but I think it's getting just as it's getting easier for one person to break things. It's also getting easier for us to apply pressure to a society, certainly economically, than it has ever been. Let's and, remember
1: though that that's always been the the example about why why you shouldn't use history as a guide because the technology and the conditions have changed. Why can we go into Iraq and not have it be Vietnam? Well, because the technology better and we can do things we couldn't do. There are certain things that sometimes turn out to be little lessons, if you will, that remind us that just because certain things have changed, other realities may stay the same. I think that it's a a mirage and and, and it's something that continually lures you into bad decisions to think, listen, we don't have to say Afghanistan's a tough country to occupy because we have satellites now or something like that.
0: Ultimately, technology does change the game. It's just I think we're in this unhappy valley between uh, the old and the new. And the new could be even scarier than the old once we fully understand its implications. You know, the the, the prospect of having uh, an, an all-drone war or a, a war where you have, you know, credible robot soldiers, you know, that's not science fiction anymore. That's that is a very plausible future and you know so so a war where nobody has to send their son or daughter to die because they're all fighting from an office park outside of las vegas that's um i would be very surprised if we don't arrive in a future very much like that and then the ethics of warfare become something that you have to think about in uh, differently and it's it's interesting and worth worrying about in advance because when the technology finally arrives it, it will matter what we think about it
1: well and and, and we'll end it here only because i could open up a whole can of worms suggesting that there's a yin yang that happens with the technology whereas one side gets this bloodless seemingly on our end uh, uh, massive technological advantage it's almost human barbarity that becomes the opposite polarity you know it's the old line about you know when when the situation was going on in ukraine recently and they were showing some russian soldiers and i remember a military guy i knew called me up and said look at those badasses look at those and they're just so down i mean they're down home tough and in a funny way that becomes the compensatory thing that you could use to counter the bloodless super high technology of somebody that if you took that drone operator from the nebraska or colorado you know technology center where he's pushing the buttons and put him in the field with that russian soldier it's over it's like it's you know in, in other words that the the way um hans del the german military historian used to say that the way that that he called them barbarian peoples compensated for the technology of people like the romans was by being harsher, more badass, and more dangerous on on an old-fashioned level. So, I mean, I think you could make a case that that almost the barbarity of ISIS-like groups becomes the counterpoint to the ability to almost bloodlessly go in there and um, create chaos, but not on our end. Does that make sense? May we never live to see uh, uh, much more of it. Uh, I mean, it's it's, from your uh, words to God's ear, right, Sam?
0: (laughs) Well, I I guess God could take that two different ways. However, that's right. I wanted Uh, you to
1: take it as many ways as you could. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Hey, it's been great talking with you, buddy.
0: It's really, yeah, it's really been a pleasure talking to you, and I I hope it's the the first of many occasions. And again, keep up what you're doing on your other podcast because. We're living through the great age of radio, as far as I can tell now, and it's it's the great age of podcasts. And you are my principal reason for saying that. So, oh keep man, it up.
1: well then I just owe you lunch or dinner. Fair enough, we'll call I, it even. All right, I will, I will, uh, I'll take it. I thank, love it. thank you, buddy. I appreciate it. Yeah, take care.
0: If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. You'll also get access to advance tickets to my live events, as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.